Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. A mid-morning dance with the devil from the farmer of fury. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is official now. Men are from Mars and women are from Venus. But you knew that, right? Uh, A new study from Cambridge University scientists involving over half a million people has declared that men and women really do think differently. So much so that the male of the species is actually better at putting up flat pack furniture and women are apparently much more empathetic. How can they get away with saying this kind of stuff without being arrested for a hate crime? 0344 499 We'll be finding out uh, from various experts. Daisy McAndrew is back and we'll be running a few tests to see whether these scientists are right. We'll also be finding out why having a legally designated red light district in Leeds has been such a disaster and why there is a halloumi crisis in Britain as well. 0344 499 1000 is the number and as if that's not enough we'll tell you why building a third runway at Heathrow is actually a complete and utter waste of time. You're listening to me Mike Graham and Daisy McAndrew on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. It's time to say very good morning to Daisy McAndrew. Very good morning. How lovely to see you. It's uh, stopped raining Finally, I never thought it it's would. Very... After the last weekend, I thought we were going to have to start building an ark. It is very, very nice out there. Now, you won't be surprised as mm. a famous cheese lover that yes. the halloumi story is the one that's really got me going <laughs> this morning. Yes, I mean, who knew there would be a halloumi crisis in exactly. this country? And apparently it's got something to do with the goats, isn't it, or the shortage thereof? It's... Well, I'd never realised, and I should have as a self-confessed cheese expert, yeah. That halloumi is made of a mixture of goat's milk, sheep's milk, and cow's milk. Oh, okay. Now, obviously, there's plenty of cow's milk around in the world, but yeah. there's not so much goat's milk and cheese milk. Indeed. And that American a... woman's been up in Scotland shooting them all. That's why. There that's... obviously is a shortage of goats. That's exactly why. So, Cyprus is where halloumi traditionally right. comes from. Yeah. Uh, I might be going into too much detail. I on find that. it's a bit rubbery for me, halloumi, but rubbery. I mean, I don't like the idea of a shortage. So, I mean, I'm, I'm all for solving the crisis as best we can. Yes, we let can. there be halloumi Let for there those be who want halloumi. it. Yes, exactly. They should. <laughs> not be a shortage of anything like that. Coming up, though, we will be talking about a great many things, including a bizarre story from uh, uh, up in Leeds where a red light district was yeah. set up and some terrible, terrible things have happened. I don't really want to go into them now, uh, but we'll be finding out why it's such a bad idea as far as the residents mm. are concerned to allow sort of open prostitution to take place on the streets. It's basically made the whole place a no-go area, hasn't it? I just think it's such an interesting area. You know, once you take out the sort of hand-wringing and the you know, sort of explosions of anguish about it. When you when you sort of 
if you're a bit practical about it, you say, right, these things are going to go on. How can we make it safer for everybody? And then you start looking at it from that angle. And so many people have tried mm. different experiments and they all seem to fail. Yes. There must be a way to control these and make... Because it is, of course, as we all know, you know, the world's oldest profession. So you would think that we'd have managed to figure out a way of making it work, but we still exactly. haven't. Exactly, exactly. And I do think just saying, you know, turn a blind eye and pretend it's not going to happen or pretend there, mm. there's a world in which it doesn't happen yeah. isn't the answer. But, I mean, I'd love to hear if anybody's got you know, any ideas yes. of, you know, of, of what is I'm pretty is sure Leeds is not the only place they've done it as well. We'll come to that later on. First up, though, we're going to talk about how men and women really do think differently. This is one of these great stories that everybody does in a different way. The Sun yeah. uh, has done this story uh, by basically saying men are better at putting up flat pack furniture which is one conclusion. Uh, the Times says men and women really do think differently uh, on the basis that this study, which is more than 650,000 yeah. people, it's a hell of a big study done by scientists at Cambridge University, basically saying uh, that women are more empathetic, uh, they have more idea of uh, how other people's feelings are going. Men, on the other hand, apparently don't understand other people's yeah. feelings. I mean, it's a very wide-ranging kind of generalisation, it seems it, to me. It is, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be thinking this morning, tell me something I don't already know. Yeah. I know that that women are better at understanding other people's feelings and having empathy. It's all, always about this word, empathy. I know that men are better at, and they call it systemizing, but yeah. you're trying to work out how things are being practical. How and things trying, work. Trying to work out how things work. I don't know work. how anything works. Rather than, so, we, so, so you know, we girls spend our time trying to work out what's going on in other, in other people's brains. Yeah. You know, and men try to work yeah. out what's going on underneath the bonnet in their of own, the car. In their own you know, brain. That's a sort of a, you know, well, wild that's, yeah, generalization. That's, that's a very wild generalization. It, it seems as though, and maybe we're missing the nuances here, so let's talk to Joe Hemmings with behavior psychologist uh, and relationship coach because she may be able to kind of uh, translate some of this stuff for us because it does seem a little bit kind of black and white joe very good morning to you good morning i mean i am i missing something here it seems to be that this would have been a great opportunity to be a bit more nuanced about the idea of you know how different men and women are but instead it's kind of bringing up all these old stereotypes well it is but those old stereotypes exist i mean I mean, I, I'm surprised at studies like this because they kind of do say the same thing over and over again mm. because a lot of it is to do with brain connectivity, if you like. Right. Um, basically, women's brains uh, connect across the left and right hemispheres. Men's tend to be stronger between the front and back region. I won't go into any further detail but, than that, but they do have dominant characteristics. So the left side of the brain... Um, does have characteristics like they're competitive, hierarchical, uh, doing focus on intent, logic, independent analysis, all that stuff. Women's are much more kind of collaborative, uh, values, patient, intuitive. I mean, they are what they are. But interestingly, um, the connectivity in brains, actually there's very little difference up to the age of 13 mm. between girls and boys. It sort of starts really kicking in. 14 to 17. So actually part of it is that we're reinforcing those stereotypes when children are younger. You know, we're still doing the kind of, you know, bringing them up as boys and bringing them up as girls, which just reinforces the very thing the study is saying. Um, you know, you can't alter brain connectivity, but you can kind of alter the culture around it. But it's only saying 
as Daisy said, what everybody knows already, it's not hugely helpful. No, and also it's not saying whether they think it's down to inherited characteristics or indeed socialisation, as you say. Well, one of the the, the bits of report I read said, um, we know from related studies that individual differences in empathy and systemising are partly genetic, partly influenced by prenatal hormonal exposure and partly due to environmental experience, which again seems to me like it's a bit of this, it's a bit of that and it's a bit of the other. I mean, it's very, very partly. It's almost wholly down to brain structure and how it's connected. It is very tiny parts um, due to your environment, due to your culture, uh, due to the other factors that you've mentioned. So, you know, we keep on revisiting this, but like, you're never going to get a different outcome just because that is the way we're hardwired. No, exactly right. And as far as the way that this uh, study was done, I mean, they kind of it's more of a questionnaire in a way than a study. Does that does that yeah. matter empirically? I mean, in terms of collecting data, does it make a difference? Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about doing a questionnaire, exactly. I mean, most of these other studies have been done on brain scans. So there you've got, you know, your kind of scientific, you know, evidence right in front of you. When you ask people about their self-perception, they tend to fall into the stereotypes. So... Um, they will say, you know, the guys will say, yeah, I am less emotional. Women say, no, I am more emotional. Uh, because they're actually kind of almost mm. programmed culturally to answer those questions in self-perception way, just like that. Other people might not see them like that interesting, but we tend to fall into what we think we're like or what we should be like, perhaps not necessarily what we actually are like. And, and Joe, so, um, with, without, want, without wanting to um, go even further and be even more of a cliche, but I'm going to do it anyway, is my assumption would be that women are even more likely than men to do that in that we tend to be a bit more self-deprecating and a bit more, oh, yes, I'm a bit hopeless at anything practical, but I'm very good at anything emotional. Now, this, so, is, your, this is your version of, of well, women it, rather no, than it, every other woman. That no, it, exists, it, it so. is absolutely, but also it's, you know, it, it, it is a known phenomena that women are less confident and less likely to ask for a pay rise and all that sort mm. of thing. So I think there is something in that sort of slightly mimsy attitude that a lot of us do fall back on. Well, there is, but there is a kind of tenacity and determination will help us overcome it. You know, there are more female scientists than there ever were before, for example, but there is still not enough. Um, but doesn't this so, study suggest that that's wrong, though? Doesn't this study suggest that women shouldn't become scientists because they won't be any good no, at it? Well, this, this study is just reinforcing kind of what we know about the brain structure, but it doesn't dictate the way we need to sort of live our lives, our careers. There's, there are ways of overcoming it so that you learn to develop skills from the left side of your brain rather than the right side of your brain and overcome it. So I just kind of don't, I don't see what the study brings to the table other than what we already know. And it's got not a negative side to it. It's just got a sort of neutral side to it. It doesn't, it doesn't give us any sort of hopeful structure for kind of well, being able well, to it kind, of, it, it kind of denigrates all the feminist literature that's existed for the past 40 years doesn't it it more or less says don't bother trying to do something that men are better at uh, just stick to what you know it kind of does yeah it's not very helpful not really not true one so of, it's like, one, of yeah. one of the quotes from the authors that did make me laugh this morning was it says uh, in the paper the authors discuss how it is important to bear in mind that differences observed in the study apply only to group averages not individuals and they go on to say that the data says nothing about an individual based on their gender to do that they say would constitute stereotyping and discrimination <laughs> which the authors strongly oppose circle, really, <laughs> at this point 
Yeah, because I mean, I mean, we can all come up with uh, examples. I, I can certainly come up with plenty of examples. I mean, I'm absolutely hopeless at pulling together anything from IKEA apart from a billy bookcase is about as far as I can go. Anything more complicated than that, I yeah. leave it to the mother of my children, yeah. who's far better at it actually than and, I am. And I am the world champion in packing a boot. Very, very. I mean, you're very good at ordering stuff from IKEA. I'm not I'm sure how good, good you are. I'm very good at ordering stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm not, not so sure. good at actually receiving <laughs> it. But that, that's a whole really other story. Putting the stuff together from IKEA, I think I just pulled into humans failing at that. Because yeah. Kind of the most complicated thing ever, but yeah, you do. You learn to overcome it. You learn to sort of say, okay, well, that's the way it is. But you know, it's certainly possible. I do think that's the fact that you know we are very similar, male and female, up to thirteen, is kind of interesting, mm. and almost in a way. So I do think the environmental side of it up to that age could make some changes in the long term if we didn't reinforce stereotypes. We still do reinforce stereotypes. Yeah. Um, and presumably as well, this is based upon a study, you know, sort of very much done in, in the West, as it were, rather than, you know, in, in a global sense, because it might well be that in other cultures, uh, the, the, the mix of, of, of attitudes would be entirely different. Well, indeed, the brain structure won't be, the connectivity won't be, but the attitude to it so that you don't allow those dominant sides to negate the things that are um, less dominant in your brain, yeah, that definitely influences and it can influence it. So, But you, you can't take it away from physiology. That is the way our brains are hardwired, but it doesn't mean we can't do something about it. We don't give in and play, you know, roll over and play dead ants, say, hey, ho, that's it. I don't have any space awareness because I'm a woman or I don't have any emotional empathy because I'm a man. You know, that, that would be kind of tragic if we ended up like that. I hope we're going in a different direction. And Joe, just going back to, we mentioned earlier, you know, the sciences and STEM sciences being a you know, science, technology, engineering and maths being a very dom male dominated uh, academic area. And there was a specific bit in the report that talked about how men on average um, uh, in STEM subjects um, had higher systemizing, um, as we keep saying, you know, this sort of you know, ability of analysis. And conversely, yep. women in non-STEM occupations had higher empathy scores than those working in STEM. And there was a, a story, it reminded me earlier this week, um, about how uh, the sort of... Um, high-tech industries, you know, Googles and Facebooks and Silicon Valley and all of it is incredibly male-dominated. And again, there was a piece this week saying, actually, that's nothing to do with sexism. It's just that men's brains are, are more suited to those STEM subjects. And again, it, it's sort of a, it's a dangerous path to go down. It is. I mean, it's accurate, but it's dangerous. And that's what's interesting about it. I mean, it, you know, in terms of scientific accuracy, that is correct. But in terms of where we go forward um, in our careers, or the next generation goes forward, it's not very helpful. That's the problem with it. You know, no, indeed. And, and the next stage of it, yeah, I mean, we're going to talk to, to um, uh, somebody on the autism side of this as well, because which is a, this is a sort of slightly weird leap that they seem to have made with this study, saying that they're sort of likening men's brains to a form of autism. Yeah, I mean, I understand why I did it. I'm not quite sure why I sort of threw, threw that in there. But, yeah, you know, you do find people often with autism, are very uh, analytical, very logical. You get, you know, a lot of people, you know, on the mild autistic spectrum and things like IT, I mean, that's the way their kind of brains work mm. because they have a sort of, perhaps a sort of stronger um, dominance in, in the left hemisphere of their brain. But um, I don't know why they pulled it in there because I then looked at some other feature that, that, that took it from this study and just say, you know, men are, are almost always autistic. I'm, what does that mean? That's yeah. some rubbish. Well, indeed. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know if it's absolutely 
quite helpful. Apparently, it's also now being called neurosexism, which is quite good because it's almost because oh, well, a new we'll kind of sexism. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's bizarre, isn't it? Well, listen, Joe, thank you very much indeed uh, for helping us out. Joe Hemmings, there, behavioural psychologist, I think, saying what most of us are thinking, which is really that it doesn't tell us an awful lot. This, except that if you were to take it as read and say, well, you know, does it mean, in fact, that uh, that we're as parents all wrong to be telling our kids you can do anything you like and trying to make them into, you know, sort of what you might say is kind of neutral gender-wise in terms of what they're good at. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You know what to do. 03444991000. We're talking about this Cambridge University study, uh, a scientific study of over 650,000 people, 671,606 people to be precise, uh, in which it basically says uh, men are better at fixing things and women are better uh, at caring for people, which seems a slightly old-fashioned conclusion to come to. It also says, rather controversially, I think, uh, that many men uh, have brain similarities to those who have uh, autism. And we're going to talk now to Dr. James Cusack, uh, who's Director uh, of Science at Autistica. Dr. James, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Hi, how's it going? Yeah, very well indeed. I mean, I'm not I'm not sure about this, really. I don't know quite what to think of it. I don't know whether it's, uh, it's a good thing to, to, to sort of make autism something that people talk about more, perhaps, in this way, or whether it's a good thing to say that a lot of men suffer from what looks like autism but may just be the way their brain works. I'm, I'm not really very clear. What do you make of it? Yeah, I, I think you um, raised a number of key issues. I think it's, it's obviously really good that we increase our understanding of autism. And so the survey that the study spanned from was a Channel 4 program called um, Are You Autistic, which was great in terms of raising our mm. understanding right. of autism. I think what this study really effectively tells us is that men and women self-report things differently. And we don't, but we don't really know why that's the case. This study doesn't really tell us whether or not it's because it's the fact, the fact that their brains are different or they, they, they behave differently or it's because the fact that they might just socially be predisposed to supporting things differently. Mm. And then I think when it comes to autism, um, I think that that's a very separate issue. So I think the fact that autistic people report things differently from non-autistic people has nothing really to do with gender. It's to do with the fact that autistic people see the world in a different way from non-autistic people. And so you can see that in the results. So... Um, both autistic males and autistic females report slightly differently as well. So it's not, you can see that the gender, the factor of gender is very different from the factor of whether or not you are or are not autistic. Because, um, Dr. Dr. Cusack, it wasn't clear to me um, whether the study was saying that more men are autistic or the way I read it when first reading it was that autistic people have these more masculine traits in their uh, brains and that their scores were masculinized and that they had higher scores on systemizing and lower scores on empathy. Yeah, well, I think I think what we do know, based on the current evidence, is that um, autism is more common in men than it is in women. Um, but you know that's that is very much subject to debate within the academic literature at the moment. Um, I think there is a suggestion within the paper that autism is a, is, is a, is a, is a masculinized way of thinking, and I would I would strongly disagree with that. I think autism is something very distinct, and I think that actually the data and the research suggests that, and I think it's quite dangerous to position autism in that way because we already know that women who are autistic are remarkably underdiagnosed 
so they're very, they're much harder to spot than men. So girls who grew up with autism generally aren't diagnosed as quickly that's, as boys. That's interesting. Why why is that? Well, I think uh, there's, there's a range of things, and actually the research is very much at its early stages. But we know we know that girls are quite often more capable of uh, masking their behaviour than boys. They might present slightly differently. Um, ultimately, people get a diagnosis on the basis of their behaviour and their need and how noticeable their behaviour is. It might just be that girls don't uh, behave in a way that is as noticeable as boys. So boys might you know, be more, more likely to be aggressive or um, their behaviour might be more prominent. And I think in girls, it can often be a little bit more um, subtle. And so quite often you see girls get to adolescence and into and, and adulthood and they have quite serious and significant mental health problems because they haven't been identified earlier. So I think you know the real, the real key message here is that what we don't want is, this, is, is a paper like this to suggest that, you know, Autism is a, is a male thing. It can exist in, in yeah. both boys and girls. And I, I found the um, the differences that it did um, draw out between different types of empathy quite interesting. So the report at one point was talking about cognitive empathy, uh, which it says mm. autistic people on average, they say, struggle with cognitive empathy. So that's mm. recognising other people's thoughts and feelings. But they don't have um, a problem with affective empathy. In other words, autistic people do care is what they were saying. They don't have a lack of, of, of caring, but they have a lack of, of empathy of understanding other people's perspective. Is that something you'd agree with? Well, I, I certainly I certainly think it's true that, you know, you know, one of the big myths that we really need to bust is this idea that autistic people don't care mm. about other people because they show, you know, autistic people have, you know, in many cases show remarkable empathy and understanding towards under people, other people. I think it's right to say that many autistic people have difficulties around uh, social understanding. I also think that one of the other things that you need that we need to bear in mind is that being autistic is in itself a very different way of being. And um, if you, you know, are that way, then it's, it's it's difficult to understand other people. So we all struggle to understand people that are very different from each other. And so it's not only autistic people that struggle to understand non-autistic people. Non-autistic people also really struggle to understand autistic people yeah. as well. And so there's that to throw into the mix as well. So they are two separate things. So. Autistic people certainly do have difficulties around social understanding, but there's also the issue around autistic and non-autistic people understanding each other as well. And, we, and that has been referred to as a double empathy problem. Right. And how does that get fixed? I mean, do you, do you have a plan, as it were, Dr James, for kind of making that better? Well, you know, we're an, we're an autism research charity, and so we believe that, you know, through research that we can really change the outcomes which autistic people face. And so we know that they experience really high levels of mental health problems, um, difficulties around quality of life and access to employment. So I think that one of the first things we can really try to do is really improve our social understanding of autism and, and you know, and, and trying to raise our understanding of autism. And so programmes like Are You Autistic, which was on Channel 4, were really good in terms of doing that. But then also I think we can really work to give autistic people the skills to ensure that they can go on and succeed in life. And so we find a lot of research looking at improving autistic people's mental health, uh, helping them to manage their anxiety, helping them to have the tools to uh, communicate with uh, non-autistic people in a way that can allow them to, you know, have the same opportunities as uh, as other people in life. So, you know, we know, you know, in terms of things like getting access to employment, going on 
um, and being socially engaged in society. And we know that's really key because at the moment, autistic people don't have those opportunities in terms of employment. Um, they do experience extremely high levels of mental health problems. Mm. And we know that their physical health can be, as a group, quite poor. And that results in uh, you know, quite high rates of early death and autism as sure. well. And as a result of all the research that you're doing currently, is it becoming clear that there's 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 a, a sort of much higher level of autism in in society now than, than than we knew there was, if you like, you know, in terms of it could be from a you know a, a small level uh, in some people up to a very high level. Yeah, I mean that's a really I mean it's a really controversial topic. You know, I think you know back in the seventies and eighties we were really thinking that autism was something that happened to one in ten thousand people. I yeah. think we now recognise that it happens at least in one in a hundred people and, and, really? and possibly more. Yeah. Uh, so that's seven hundred thousand people in the UK. I think the key the, the, the key thing is that I think our understanding of autism has broadened as we're increasingly identifying more and more autistic uh, people in the society. Um, so I think. It's not. It's it's more just our society's understanding of it has really increased, rather than there being something which is causing yes. uh, an increase. I think the really important thing about autism as well is to say that although autistic people don't face the outcomes that we'd like to see in life, you know, they do also add an awful lot to society. And so, you know, by understanding autism and embracing that, and embracing what we would call neurodiversity, so the fact that everyone's brain is different, more broadly, we can really. You know, create a society which is not just in the interest of autistic people, but in the interest mm. of everyone. So, if we can no, be more accommodating, we can we can create a more productive society. But, um, Doctor, if you do accept that so many people are autistic, isn't there a danger of diluting um, the sort of understanding or or sympathies towards people who are further on the spectrum? Mm, yeah, I think it's. I think one of the one of the challenges that we face is, is. I mean, regardless of, I think the broadening the spectrum is, is is a good thing because if you look at the outcomes in the people that are what would be classically defined as people who have lower support needs or people who used to be called high functioning, um, they still do face very poor outcomes. You know, they, they're increased risk of things like suicide and you know experience poor mental health and are excluded from work. So we do need to identify. Uh, those people and give them the support they need and ensure that society is, is 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 appropriately responding to their needs. But I do think as well, one of the biggest challenges that we face in autism is understanding the matter of diversity that exists within autism. And and so I, I do think that as we broaden the spectrum, the message does become more complex. Uh, and so I, I think you're 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 right. If, if we don't actually represent the experiences of everyone, there is a danger that. Um, that people's understanding of autism is, is not as clear as it could be. Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the things that's really key is that we we have everyone's experience visible, and so that everyone can see the range of uh, people that exist on the autism spectrum. I mean, if you're a parent, for example, and you have a child that you think might be on the autism spectrum, it's it's not that easy to know what to do about that because quite often, if you go, say, for example, to a GP. Uh, to say, you know, I'm 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 slightly concerned that uh, my son or my daughter might be uh, slightly autistic or on the autism spectrum. I mean, it's not the doctors are not always the best people to go to. I know that sounds weird, but do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I've got com com complete sympathy with that point of view. So we, you know, we funded research um, a couple of years ago that shows that the um, speed to get an autism diagnosis has not really increased. Mm. Uh, it's not got it's not got quicker in the last ten years, and I think. You know, we do definitely need to be doing more to ensure that uh, parents are equipped to make to get that diagnosis as soon as possible. And both, you know, ourselves and the National Autistic mm. Society are working really hard to try and uh, 
ensure that government are increasingly seeing autism as a priority. And it, it is definitely positive to see that in the next t- 10 years, the NHS has, has marked autism down, autism and language disability down as one of their four priorities. So hopefully that will begin to change. But, you know, we do really need to see action on that because, um, yeah, it's, it, it, you know, every moment that a parent goes without having that diagnosis is a moment where the, a, a child is potentially not getting the support that they need. No, of course. Dr. James Cusack, thanks very much indeed. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Coming up, we're going to be speaking to Catherine Stevens, who's a sex worker and volunteer at the International Union of Sex Workers. But first up, we're going to talk to Christian Johnson, uh, who's a reporter at Leeds Live, because he's been covering this story. And basically, Leeds is not the first city, I don't think, in Britain to try this. I'm pretty sure Edinburgh did it some years ago, when Margot MacDonald was still um, a very active MSP and an MP, I think, at one point. She was very hot on the idea that prostitution needed to be legalised, basically. And and even if it was only legalised in one part of the city... It was safer for the for the women working in that in neck of the woods. Because I know they call it um, managed approach, which yeah. is sort of you know. So that that it's like they're turning a blind eye mm. rather than it being legal. Because if it was legalised in some way, you know, it would you'd have to have a license yeah. and you'd have to get you know it would be like being a strip club. Sure. So it'd be very very different. I think mm. this is more turning a blind eye and sort of looking out, decriminalising it maybe, decriminalising in a way and looking at and of course you know don't remember you know, don't forget Leeds you know has a, a terrible history with. You know, the Yorkshire Ripper yeah. and you know, pr- prostitutes being murdered and so on. And, and you've always got to be looking at you know, so many of these places and councils and politicians and you know, policymakers are trying to work out how to protect human life and stop prostitutes or sex workers uh, being raped you know, being murdered being attacked um, and feeling not the feeling that the police you know they can't go to the police that yeah. police aren't on their side whilst looking after the local community and you know finding you know you don't want to have as we've seen in this case you know children I mean literally babies being subjected. well in one case we've got a, a, a grandmother saying she was pushing a baby in a pram through this particular area somebody in a car stopped asked her how much would she charge for the baby for an hour? Yeah. I mean, you know, beggars belief that anyone would even think that, never mind say it. Let's talk to Christian Johnson from Leeds Live and find out what's been going on. Christian, a very good morning to you. 
Good morning. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, the residents seem to be very, very fed up with the way this has been operated. I mean, how bad has it been and, and what sort of a no-go area have they created here? Well, I think the main gripe from the residents is that the, the managed approach, the managed zone, as it's called, isn't actually managed as effectively as was first laid out by the council. Now, a certain area of Holbeck around some industrial units, which is where the prostitution zone is essentially meant to, meant to be. But the residents uh, have, have told countless stories of uh, prostitutes coming out onto residential streets. They found used condoms, uh, used needles, because there's obviously a, a lot of uh, issues with drugs around around prostitution in Leeds. But they found that so much litter from, from the sex industry in Leeds is finding its way onto residential streets where children live, and, and even outside primary schools as well. And, and Christian, I read two cases, and I don't know whether they've been verified, but a, a teacher said that she was mistaken for a prostitute and raped in May, and then a prostitute um, said that she was run over in a car by, you know, a, a would-be punter, I guess, in July. Are, are those cases have have they been verified? Do we know if they're true? We've covered those on on Leeds Live, both those cases, yeah, and we work very closely. You mentioned Save Our Eyes, a a local sort of campaign group set up by residents. They're the real driving force behind trying to get a sense of of exactly what the managed approach is trying to do, because it was set up in the first place to try and make things safer for the prostitutes in Leeds, to try and make sure that they were safer and that there weren't horrendous crimes such as murders carried out. Now, unfortunately, there was a a woman, Dara Fionco, who was murdered in December 2015, and that was actually inside the managed approach. The council uh, and the police here say that the whole basis of this scheme is to make things safer. But the main gripe, as I keep coming back to, is, is that it doesn't seem to be managed at all, and, and the residents feel as though it's just been dumped on their doorstep and left there without any regard to yeah. them at all. I mean, what was it like before they made this a kind of a managed area, if you like? Was it a free-for-all? I mean, was it all going on anyway? There were other areas of the city where, where prostitution took place, and I think trying to corral it into, into one area, again, is trying to, to, to make it easier to manage. It did happen in, in Holbeck as well. It did happen in other parts of the city, but it certainly got worse in Holbeck because all the prostitution has, has gone to a very, very concentrated area mm. of things just south of the River Air. Christian, I've read, uh, certainly when I've covered um, legalisation or decriminalisation of prostitution in places like where they've tried it in places in Germany and in Amsterdam, and then when they've done the reverse in Switzerland, and um, well, they've uh, criminalised it, so they've they've done a U-turn in Switzerland, and I've I've looked at all those places, and one of the alarming things that tends to come out of those um, examples is that when you legalise prostitution, you tend to increase human trafficking, um, particularly if the country in which you're legalising or decriminalising prostitution is quite a rich democratic country, you tend to then get a bigger influx um, of human trafficking, of uh, particularly of, of sex workers. I don't know if the Leeds example is too small an example, but have you seen anything like that? I wouldn't be able to comment specifically on that. That's not something that we've we've heard from. Uh, we have approached Bathurst Yorkshire, who are who are a charity that work with sex workers, um, but they were unwilling to speak to us in, in regards to this story. But that, I mean, that's something I think that's that's the case all over the country. It's clearly a lot of the women are, are very dependent on drugs, and and they use prostitution to to, to feed their needs when it comes to drugs. And I think that's that's at the crux of the issue here.
Yeah, because there's apparently been a lot of needles found discarded yeah. in that area, which I suppose if you've got children um, who are walking the streets and, and, and even pets walking the streets, you know, you wouldn't oh, want that. It's, it's disgusting. I mean, for Leeds Live, we put together a mini documentary selling sex on the streets of Leeds. And I walked around with some of the residents um, there to see exactly what they come across on a, on a daily basis. And I met uh, a woman, Claire Bentley-Smith, who just dropped her son off at school. And we walked around the back of the school fence and there were, there were needles, as you say, there were used condoms everywhere all around Holbeck and you know this isn't in the managed approach this is on the residential streets this is actually outside the area that was established in the first place but because it isn't being managed effectively it's spilling out into into massive areas of South Wales. And I mean I'm assuming that most of the residents would you know if you were to ask them what they wanted um, to be done would just say you know I want these people moved away from my area you know not in my backyard and so on but I've se- I've read an article written by a colleague of yours I think um, or, or certainly a Leeds journalist calling for you know the other approach which is to legalize that the you know, the, the entire um, you know the entire thing and so that you would put in place proper inspections you know licenses in the way that you would have a license for a strip club um, and at least then you know somehow monitor the behavior of you know these these sex workers it does that have any public sympathy that angle it's something that would need managing effectively and i think the, the residents in holbeck particularly don't have confidence in that because even this scheme, which doesn't require licences, that's not been managed effectively. Mm. So to, to to take it on to another level would, would require a lot of a lot of um, you know people looking at it really really closely. And I'm not sure there's the confidence in Leeds that that could actually happen. Certainly not in the short term. And when the police and the council are asked why it's been managed so badly, what do they say? They say that it's under continuous review. We, we've asked um, for, for interviews on, on a number of occasions and, and they've declined uh, the council and, and West Yorkshire Police on, on every occasion we've asked. But they, they do say it's under continual review. Um, I was actually at a uh, public meeting with residents and the police turned up to, to that um, around a number of issues in Holbeck. But as you can imagine, it was, it was completely and utterly dominated by the managed approach. It got very, very feisty. It got very, very heated. And, and no matter what topic was brought up, it always came back to the managed approach and the residents thinking that the police aren't doing enough, not just to, just to alleviate the issues in Holbeck, but also to actually protect the sex workers in Leeds as well. Mm. And there is a meeting uh, tomorrow, I understand, from the uh, of the council where there's going to be a suggestion from the Conservative side of the uh, the aisle, I believe, to, to scrap it. Yeah, so it's a, it's a Labour-run council. It has been for many years, but the Conservative councillors are, are putting forward a motion to say that it, it needs to be managed effectively or scrapped altogether. Now, whether this goes ahead or not, we'll find out tomorrow, but it, it, it really does speak volumes that it's being brought up. Um, it's not the first time this, this sort of issue has been brought up at a council meeting, but this is the first time in quite a while. Um, and it shows the sort of scale of support that the residents have got from, from councillors across the city, or well, some of them at least. No, of course. Christian, thanks very much indeed for your time. Christian Johnson there, reporter from Leeds Live. We're joined now by Kat Stevens, who's a sex worker and volunteer at the International Union uh, of Sex Workers. Kat, very good morning to you. Welcome back to the show. Hi, thanks very much for having us Yeah, on. not at all. And I know you're not in Leeds itself, but you know maybe some things about what's going on up there. Um, am I right in saying that this is not the first sort of, uh, shall we say, managed red light district that's been set up here? I'm pretty sure there was one in Edinburgh, and maybe I'm thinking there was maybe one in Brighton a few years ago. Uh, there have been various times when uh, police and local authorities have taken um, different approaches 
to uh, policing uh, on-street sex work. And, but they, they're not necessarily all being consistent. So when you say managed zone, it's not like there's one template that's been rolled out in different right. areas. And one of the things that we talk about a lot is making policy based on evidence. And that means looking at the, the wide range of evidence in context. And actually, if you talk to uh, people at BASIS, who are the support service, they're really overstretched in terms of delivering support services because obviously that kind of thing has faced enormous cuts over the last couple of, over the last couple of decades. Mm. Um, they are very much in favour of this because it means that they are able to locate and support the woman and that means helping them with all sorts of things, including things like drug, uh, drug support, including things like exiting. They don't have the resources to keep responding uh, to the kind of frequent media inquiries. It's absolutely appropriate that organisations like yours or organisations like Leeds Live go to them. But they don't, they don't have the funds for that. Whereas if you compare it with something like Save Our Eyes, who are a pro-criminalisation campaigning body, they're very clear. They're not interested. They make a statement. They're not interested in uh, improving the lives of the women who sell sex. They're looking to eradicate sex work and that's an ideological point of view rather than one driven by evidence and rather than one looking at actually supporting people both the women selling sex and the communities of which they're part um, one final point is that in terms of the the uh the very scary article that was in the daily mail uh all the incidents referred to now are outside the time when the managed zone is operating. They are out there in times when policing is, uh, when complete criminalisation, which is the law, is being enforced. So actually, I think a lot of those incidents show that that, that, that approach fails at tackling violence. It fails at tackling abuse. It, it, it seems to Kat, I'm glad to hear, you know, we, I think you and I and Mike will all agree that, you know, evidence-based uh, policy or decisions on, on these things are best. And if we're looking at the evidence, obviously it's to, you know, eradicate or as much as possible the dangers that sex workers facing and, you know, we, and, and others. You know, we heard about a teacher being raped in May, a sex worker being run over in July, and then our reporter who we were just talking to was telling us about another murder that happened earlier this year. And then on the other hand, you've got, you know, condoms and and um, uh, needles being you know, left around in residential areas. You've got people being very frightened, uh, you know, children being um, you know, spoken to by seemingly by uh, sort of curb crawlers and so on. So you've got those two sides of the argument to try to weigh up. And when you talk about um, evidence, clearly the evidence of this situation isn't working and maybe it's what you're saying in that the, the hours that these bad things are happening are out of the hours of the managed zone. And then it seems to me that then the hours of the managed zone um, need to be changed. But if we're going down the sort of you know, bigger policy um, ideas or ideology, and if we look at, you know, we started off the, this hour when we're talking about this, we're talking about Denmark and Germany and Switzerland, who've all done different things, but either criminalising or decriminalising. And one of the things None that seems... None of those countries have decriminalised. The well, only country that well, has Germ decriminalised is New Zealand. Germany's a legalised situation. And legalised situations, whether it's Nevada, whether it's Germany, whether it's the Netherlands, they are shown to fail. 
That's why globally there are hundreds of sex workers' organisations. There are about half a dozen in the UK. And what we talk about is decriminalisation because that frees up police resources. It frees up support services resources to tackle violence and abuse and to tackle things that are actually problematic for communities in ways that are effective. So just so people can understand the difference between criminalisation and decriminalisation and legalisation, obviously they're they're all different. And, And one of the things I particularly want to ask you about is the effect um, that it has on human trafficking and sex trafficking which many people point to Amsterdam for instance and say that experiment which started in the the year 2000 um, has people say has failed because the almost unintended um, circumstance or unintended um, end end result consequences Mm. has been an increase in the trafficking well I think that's one of the things where we need to look at broader context Uh, So, for example, that's in a context around migration. It's in a context around the possibilities for legal migration. It's around the possibilities for legalised work. And if you look at data relating to the UK, so there are two big studies. Uh, One is by the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and one is by uh, um, an academic called Nick May, who is now based at Kingston University. They looked at trafficking in the UK sex industry and they found a rate that translates out to about 7% of the total proportion of sex workers in the UK. That's based on very aggregated data that would take quite a long time to... I'm happy to go into details with your fair, yeah. but it would take quite a long time sure. to go through. As far as... And as far as... is to be able to target that small percentage, not have a blunderbuss approach, and actually enable people so that if they... People in the sex industry... So if we do see situations where we do worry that people are victims of trafficking and abuse, where we can report it without fear of arrest. And if you look at the data from the National Ugly Mugs Project, the Specialist Anti-Violence Project, which I would really recommend people do, they talk about the fact that people in areas like Leeds will will contact the police, will report to the police, and that means more violent perpetrators behind bars. What about where this is all going to work, though? Because what we seem to be dealing with here, Kat, is that the residents are very unhappy about what's going on. Now, you might say that's because it's not being managed right, but I imagine the residents would say, actually, we don't really want this going on in our street at all. So where can you do this uh, if it is going to be decriminalised or whichever preferred version of it you want? I mean, you know, in the end, you're always going to be adversely affecting a community, aren't you? Okay, for start, the vast majority of people are working indoors. Between estimates range between 70 and I think that 94%. Again, that's all very aggregated data, you know. Um, but even. Yeah, but it's so not very well talking about data, Kat. You're talking about men visiting women to have sex with them. I don't think anyone's going to want that going on in their street, wherever it's happening, whether um, it's happening inside well, or outside. There are probably people having sex for all sorts of reasons in all sorts of areas. I mean, you know, men, but I mean, you know, probably both of you have had sex, and if not, you probably have not with each other. No, it's not. A, it's <laughs> but thanks not for an, asking. It's not an antisocial. No, but that's know, not the same. You know what I'm saying? It's not the same as men turning up, strange men from all sorts of different parts of the city, uh, because they know that they can buy sex there. That's going to be uh, creating a bad situation, surely. Well, in again, in terms of how we manage things to support communities and the women of which they are part. So one of the things we say is one of this is around the massive cuts to the police service in Leeds and across Yorkshire. Yorkshire Police Service is is described as exhausted. 
And it's in a context where, actually, if you want to get drug support, I mean, there's um, Forward uh, is the recently uh, created uh, drug and alcohol service uh, for um, Leeds. But actually, it's a lot quicker to get drugs than it is to get support. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. Service. But what I'm saying, just so very quickly, Kat, because we're out, we're we out of time. Just very quickly, where would, where would you do this, though, is what I'm saying? Where can you do it where, it where the residents are not affected? I don't think you can, can you? Um, I think you can, and I think you can also work with residents so that the the kind of bigoted and discriminatory attitudes of organisations like Save Our Eyes get less traction. So they actually recognise that people in the sex industry are people just like them, and we deserve the same respect, and our presence is not dangerous. We have a right to be on the streets. And that can be safe for people in the community. OK, Kat, thanks very much indeed. Let's talk to Sean, uh, who's in Gospel. Hello, Sean. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, David. Good morning. morning what do you want to tell us? Um, you, you were just touching on the um, the sex trade in Amsterdam um, with regards to the red light distance. Yeah. Um, I've, I've been. I've been a couple of times. Um, and to me, it's a perfectly safe way of doing that sort of thing, if you see what I'm saying. Mm. Well, it might be safe for um, you, Sean, but, Sean but, but whether it's safe for the for the women is another matter, right? And, and Sean, can I just ask you, how recently did you go? Because my understanding is that it's got a lot less safe. Um, I haven't been to Amsterdam for about six or seven years. That was the last time I went. Um, but the, the two times I have been, I mean, I went once when I was 19, and then I went again sort of when I was, I think it was about 27. It was quite a while ago sort of direction. But, I mean, the times I went, it was safe. It was well policed. Mm. Um, the sex workers had panic buttons in their rooms. So if somebody did get a bit too much, they could obviously press the button. I mean, yeah. I often saw police officers with batons, tasers, you name it. Um, they, they, didn't, they didn't take any nonsense in Holland when I was there. I mean, what, what I found was that they've got quite a sort of, what can I say, liberating attitude towards sex. Whereas in this country, it's not the same. We're kind mm. of like taboo about it. Yeah, exactly. It's hidden away. And the theory in Amsterdam was that, you know, the the sex trade um, would be decriminalised or legalised and that the sex workers would be looked after and equally they were a tourist attraction. They brought in a lot of money for the area and if that and that money and a proportion of that money would therefore be sent be spent on protecting them and looking after them. So it was a sort of harmonious relationship that actually the city got something out of the sex mm. trade, you know, and it wasn't just sleazy, it was actually part of the culture. And meanwhile, you know, the, the sex workers were looked after by the local authorities. The trouble is that, you know, and I, I haven't been, but I've certainly read that once it was officially legalised in 2000, you saw a huge influx of people traffickers who were using, who were able to say, I'm not a... A, you know, a slave trader, a sex slave trader. I'm simply a businessman because yeah. it's now legal. I'm a businessman. Yes, right. These, you know, these girls are here of their own free will, and it actually increased massively. Yeah. This, the, the, the sex. It's the same slave argument trade. around the the legalisation or the criminal decriminalisation of cannabis in, in Amsterdam, isn't it, Sean? Because remember they uh, they they did that uh, and then realised that people were coming there as kind of drug tourists, and so they made it possible impossible for you to visit. I think, uh, and go to these um, uh, cannabis cafes unless you actually were a resident of Amsterdam. Yeah, I, I think that's a recent change in the law. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've, I've not been myself, obviously, for a while, but my nephew has been um, recently, but I haven't had a chance to kind of speak to him about his trip. 
Right. Um, but when I went, both times I went, if, if that was your sort of thing and you wanted to go and do cannabis, you could. What was what I was a bit shocked about the first time I went was how many people I was bumping into in the streets trying to sell you stuff. Yeah, right. That, that was that that was a little bit kind of out of the box for me. Mm. I was a bit like, "Oh, what's going on here?" Right. Um, but it was almost like two worlds in Amsterdam. Never like the cultural side of Amsterdam, where the cathedral was and all yeah. that sort of thing. Right. And then there was like where the red light district was, and it was kind of like this underworld sort of thing. And you could just go and do pretty much mm. what you liked as long as you behaved yourself. Right. And that was kind of like where the line was. And like I said, I saw so many police officers around with batons and tasers and you name it. If you stepped out of line, I mean, I, I saw somebody say something pretty unsavoury to a, a woman in a bar. I mean, within two minutes, the police were in and the guy was in the back of a van and oh, that really? was him. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was pretty, you know, pretty stern. And mm. that's what I was saying to you. I think it can be done, but you, you've got to have... A, the political will to do it, and, and your society's got to be prepared for it because it, it can be a bit of a culture shock. No, I think you're absolutely right. And if we don't know how to do it, then probably it's a good idea not to. Sure, thanks very much indeed uh, for your call. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.